Hey, Fisheries Podcast listeners. I wanted to start this episode with a quick housekeeping note and a few clarifications slash additional info that I just forgot about during this interview. First for housekeeping, we at the Fisheries Podcast are in the process of making a few new types of episodes to help buffer our schedules when life and fieldwork get busy. With that, we are looking for submissions from listeners for our Fish Tales episodes, which can be stories from the field, creative poems or essays, or any other fish-related stories you'd like to share. Or if you've got bits of hard-earned advice about communication, mentorship, or other topics, we are also looking for advice audio clips that we can compile into themed episodes about a given topic. I've included links in the show notes where you can submit your stories and advice to either of these episode types. Next, as far as clarification items go, later in this episode, I could not remember Dr. Drew Lanham's name when I was trying to recall his keynote speech at the combined AFS-TWS meeting in Reno, Nevada. So when you get to that point in the episode and I can't remember his name, it's Drew Lanham. Um, He is an incredible poet and wildlife biologist, so you should all consider checking out his work if you can. And lastly, I completely forgot to ask this week's guest, Dr. Kat Dale, about her art science initiative called Fish Matter, which is a project that, as Kat notes on her website, stemmed from a desire to connect art and science and to expose people to species they may not have been aware of previously. In lieu of actually asking her about this project, I have included a link to this project on Kat's website so you can all check out her beautiful artwork, as well as a link to her Etsy shop if you'd like to buy any of these designs as stickers. With that, I will get back to our regularly scheduled program, and I hope you all enjoy this interview with Dr. Kat Dale. Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinle, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Kat Dale. Kat is a marine ecologist interested in understanding what selective pressures influence the dispersal and movement of fishes, primarily in their early life stages, such as environmental conditions, morphology, and body coloration, with a particular interest in eels. Kat is currently a postdoctoral scholar at East Carolina University, working with Rebecca Ash. She recently completed her PhD at the University of California, Santa Cruz, working with Rita Meta and Tim Tinker. Prior to that, she received her bachelor's degree from the University of Miami in 2015. In addition to teaching and mentoring over the past few years, Kat started an art science initiative called Fish Matter. Kat has also been involved at the subunit chapter and division levels of the American Fisheries Society and has been an active member for the past six years. Welcome to the podcast, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So I always like starting with people's backgrounds because I always think it's fun hearing how people got interested in the field to begin with. So where did your interest in fisheries begin? Yeah, so I've always been interested in the ocean and marine biology. I'm actually from rural Pennsylvania, so we don't we didn't have an ocean growing yeah. up, but my grandparents used to live in, in Hawaii. So uh, I grew up going on these family vacations to Hawaii every year, and I was the kid who would sit and read through whole fish identification guides, memorizing scientific names and everything. So I feel like it was at that <laughs> point that everyone knew I was going to do marine science, but I wasn't mm-hmm. sure what aspect. And I fell into fish when I worked first for NOAA as an undergrad at the University of Miami. So I had this amazing research assistant position where I went on some research cruises and I worked on larval fish. And that's what really got me interested in early life history stages and what influences dispersal. 
And what got me into eels in particular, so I, I focus a lot on eels. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in fish in general, but my PhD work was a lot on eels. And I went on this research cruise off Oregon. We were, we were looking for juvenile salmon, but in some of the nets, we found these really remarkably large eel larvae that were about 32 centimeters long. Wow. And that was, that is so crazy when you consider that most fish larvae get to be just a few millimeters in mm-hmm. size before they transform. So finding these absolutely honk and eel larvae <laughs> really got me wondering like, why does this larval form exist? Why do you get, why do these animals get so large as larvae? All those sorts of questions. So that sort of galvanized my PhD research, but interested in diadromous fishes in particular. Yeah. Awesome. So did you go straight from your undergrad to your PhD? No, I took one year off and I actually switched from working on fish to working on birds for a year. So I harassed a lot of ducks and longer <laughs> turns and ospreys. It was a super fun position. I really recommend for any undergrads listening, I really recommend taking a year off. I feel like that job really got my my feet wet sort of in a different field. It gave me a lot of experience with leading a field crew and doing just different work mm-hmm. and developing research questions and everything. So it was a great job that was based in, in Maryland outside of DC. Awesome. And then you came back to fish for your PhD. So can you give them an overview of what you did for that project? Sure. Yeah. You, you touched on it a little bit in the intro. So I worked on why fish are found in some places, but not others. And I focused a lot on the Eastern Pacific and my main study system was the California moray eel, which is the only moray eel found off California. And I used a lot of different tools in my PhD <laughs> work. I definitely wasn't the sort of classic PhD project where you do one, mm-hmm. one experiment and then write a bunch of papers off that. I worked on eel adult body coloration. I looked at larval body shape and if that influences dispersal. I did a bunch of big rad sequencing, looking at genetic connectivity through the whole range of the California Mori. Um, And then my final chapter, I actually took a broader view and looked at more fisheries, important species. So commercially important species and used some big Bayesian statistical models to examine changes in abundance with different environmental factors. So really varied. I really liked it because I had developed many tools in my Mm -hmm. toolbox. And now at East Carolina, I'm sort of doing similar work. I'm actually still working on California and West Coast fish data sets and still looking at early life history and how timing of different ichthyoplankton abundances shift over time and what environmental factors may be influencing that. Awesome. I'm actually really happy to hear you say that because that's my project is kind of like that where I'm like, oh, I'm doing this tool for this chapter and this tool for this chapter. I'm like, yeah, might be a bit broad, but at least I get a lot of skills. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to link all of those, you know, like writing your final dissertation Uh and your conclusion that that can be challenging, but um, I think it's great to come out with a really diverse skill set because then as a postdoc now, someone in my new lab is working on genetics and I was like able Mm -hmm. to help him already. And someone else is working on otoliths. And I was like, oh, I've I've done a little bit of otolith work and someone else is doing some modeling things that I have have experience in. So it's it's fun to be able to at least chime in, um, even if I'm not an expert in it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is a quick sidebar and this might be a silly question, but how are morphology and body coloration different? I would have thought that body coloration has to do with morphology, but maybe I'm thinking about that. Yeah. So morphology is the form of things. So when I was looking at larval body shape, I was a larval morphology in implies body shape. So how like there, there are different aspect ratios or their head lengths or like body lengths, things like that. So that's where the morphology comes into 
I think about coloration as like a little something different because it's not exactly like their shape. It's mm -hmm. what they look like and right. like what the actual, yeah, hue, luminance, counter shading, et cetera, of what they cool. look like. Do more eels have pretty unique body colorations from each other with it, like within that species? Yeah. So not on the, it, not qualitatively. So okay. if you look at one mori versus another, you'll say, well, they're all kind of just brown and mottled uh -huh. and that's that. Yeah. But what galvanized that project was finding some really yellow eels in this really unusual, very sandy harbor where we didn't even think mores would live, but they, they're there and there's a lot of them. And we pulled up these ones that were really yellow and we wondered, wow, I wonder if habitat is selecting for some aspect related to coloration. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what galvanized that project. And, and actually, after we caught hundreds of eels and photographed them, you could lay them all out and see that there is actually differences in coloration that's just not as visible to someone right. something around. But yeah. Very cool. I wasn't sure if it was something like with rays or sharks sometimes where they like take the picture and they're like, oh, we you know it's this exact shark because of this coloration. So, oh, yeah, no. I mean, I'm sure you could do that because their modeling is probably unique to every eel. Yeah. But it would take a lot of machine learning right. to, be able to do yeah, that. For yeah. sure. So you've worked on a few uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion type projects while you're in school. Can you touch on some of those? Yeah, that's really kind of you to say. I I have done some DAI work. I feel like I could have done more probably. And also it's definitely a community community mm -hmm. projects. So a lot of people working on these, but one activity that I'm, I'm specifically really proud of is the seminar series that my subunit helps to develop called Diverse Voices in Fishery Science. And we ran it both last year and again this spring. And we gathered a really great group of folks for each series whose work all focuses on fisheries in some way, but the groups varied really widely in terms of their own background, their field of work, their geographic location, their career stage. So really fun, really diverse set of, set of people. And each seminar talk was followed by a, an extended Q&A section, where, uh, which I moderated. And I asked them difficult questions about things like mentorship and what mm -hmm. obstacles they faced and what brings them joy about their job. So it was a little bit more than just your typical research talk followed by research questions, but really dove into people's experiences as well, which was really special. And we recently published a, real, a short student angle paper in Fisheries Magazine that highlighted some of the takeaways from the first year's series. So if you're mm -hmm. interested in learning more about that, definitely go and check that out. So that's one thing that I'm really proud of yeah. at, at, our, at the subunit level. And my subunit, which is the Santa Cruz Monterey Bay Area subunit, uh, we've, we've done a lot of different diversity initiatives to like getting into classrooms and doing genetic barcoding and running different outreach activities for kids. And we worked with the Santa Cruz Boys and Girls Club one year, which was really great. So a lot of different small activities as well. Did you end up recording any of those speaker series? Like if people wanted to go back and listen to them? Yes, we did record all the talks. So if you want to go and check them out, they're all on the Scumbass website, which is ucsc.fisheries.org. If you want to go awesome. and listen to any of those. Cool. And I can include that link as a show note so people can click on it from the episode. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I was actually, I kept seeing the announcements for that and I was like, Oh, I got to make it this week. And then like, I look at the time, I'm like, Oh, it passed again. So I'm yeah. happy to hear they were recorded. <laughs> Some of them were, were, yeah. I mean, they were, they were all great. There was mm -hmm. one in particular where someone did a, like a, like a poetry jam at the end oh, of his. Nice. So, and it was amazing. He did it from memory and it was just like, 
all of us were in shock afterwards. So yeah, <laughs> recommend. That's awesome. they're, they're entertaining. I think one of my favorite keynote speakers at the AFS meeting in Reno, it, the entire speech was a poem. I think it was, oh, wow. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, I might cut this part out, but it, that was just like, I got goosebumps. I'm like, why don't we do all keynotes like this? Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> so good. So with the diversity and equity work, what, why did you find it important to like put on that speaker series or what was the goal with that? Yeah. So it turns out probably to no one's surprise that fisheries is still really dominated by white men. Mm-hmm. Even, even as of 2015, there, there was an AFS survey that found that 91% of members identified as white and 25% identified as women. So obviously things have you know developed since 2015 and AFS has made it a real priority to increase diversity. But I mean, that wasn't that long ago that mm-hmm. there's it was so dominated by white men. So we all care about biodiversity in the aquatic ecosystems that we work on. And I really feel like we should care also about biodiversity in our colleagues and our workplaces mm-hmm. and diversity in terms of where you're from and your family history and your socioeconomic status that can all bring fresh ideas or different perspectives. And I really think it's also important because it brings connections to different stakeholder groups and is more representative of our overall U.S. population. So we think about fish, we think about having fisheries be sustainable and we're only capturing in our scientific community a, a small portion of the people who fish those fish matter to, right? Like right. Who, who's eating those fish, who's who's recreationally fishing those, who's benefiting from the economy surrounding fisheries. Um, it, it's more than just our scientific body. So yeah, that, that's why I view it as important to increase diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice if there are any other students or early career professionals that might want to put on a similar event? to make it go smoothly. (laughs) Definitely. So if you want to put on your own diverse voices seminar series, Zoom is perfect for these events because you can involve people who might not even be in the country. And for a student subunit, you don't have to like pay for flights for anyone. So it's really accessible and don't be afraid to reach out to people. So almost everyone we asked, we basically cold called. I mean, we had maybe a few connections here and there, but almost everyone we asked was thrilled to participate, which was great. Uh, we also did offer a hundred dollar honorarium to each speaker to thank them for their time because, you know, especially diversity work, DEI work often goes unpaid, which mm-hmm. is something that I feel like we should change. So we did offer an, an honorarium. And then I also really encourage people to reach out to emerging scientists or early career professionals. So at the graduate level or the postdoc level, there's typically more diversity at those levels. And those are voices that I feel like should be elevated because they're just starting their careers and they're also such experts in their own work because they just came out of a phd or they're mm-hmm. they're really involved in some postdoc project so those have been some of our most fun talks have been from postdocs or or early career professionals yeah absolutely i guess this rolls in well because that was done through your student subunit of afs but you have been involved across many levels of the american fishery society so far how did you first get involved with afs and what kept you coming back for for more i guess <laughs> yeah i i sort of fell into afs my first quarter of my phd i just sort of randomly attended a subunit meeting and 
also at that meeting, I randomly ran for public relations and I, I got the position because <laughs> it was a small voting body. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I just never really stopped participating. So I went on to be the president and then the past president and then the president again of my subunit. Um, our subunit's really active. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's unusual somewhat in terms of subunits, but we, we put on a whole array act- of activities. I think this past academic year, we were running like two or three events a month. Wow. So um, yeah, amazing. Our current president is just like fantastic. And some of my favorite conferences have been all AFS ones. So I just feel like it's a really welcoming community, fun loving, really smart. And the conferences also never feel too overwhelming or too large. So mm-hmm. I really, I hate conferences where you meet someone cool and then you never see them again for the yeah. next five days. And AFS has never felt like that. I've always felt like I have been able to really connect with people even though, so at the California, Nevada chapter level, it's, it's really freshwater focused and I'm a marine scientist. So I'm always the random person who's working on eagles (laughs) or something random, but even if those people are so interested and I've learned so much about different systems. So yeah, it's just a really great community. Really, really like it. And yeah, as you spoke to, I've, so I've been involved at the subunit level and that has being the president, I've then been involved at the chapter level as like a liaison between our subunit and the chapter. And then right now I'm the Western Division student representative, which means I serve on the Western Division Executive Committee. And my job is to host a yearly student colloquium and advise on student issues like travel grants, awards, different activities, things like that. So Mm -hmm. that's been fun too. What's your favorite part about that role as the Western Division student rep? Yeah, I had a really good time at our student colloquium last year. It was a a kind of a small group because it was right in the middle of one of the uh, COVID peaks, but mm-hmm. we had a really fun little crew and it was hybrid. So we had some virtual attendees as well. And we just had a ton of fun hanging out together, giving presentations, hiking, playing fish trivia. And we also went on a tour of the Skinner fish sorting facility, which is named after the same Skinner that the travel, the yeah. AFS travel award is. So it's same Skinner. And it's this really cool facility that uh, takes out fish before they get sucked into the turbines at the start of the California aquatic system. So it was really cool to, to tour that as well. Um, and the, our tour guide was also an AFS member. So oh, nice. just like AFS all around, which is yeah. really neat. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for people that might be on the fence about whether or not they should be involved with AFS or not? Yeah, I would say uh, you should do it. <laughs> if you want to get like <laughs> just a low level of, a, of commitment would just be joining a committee at mm-hmm. one of the levels that you're interested in. So the chapter, the division, there's usually committees like for DEI or for native fishes or for communications or awards. Like there's some small way that you can get involved, very low time commitment, but you'll get to meet a lot of the people on these different executive committees who are often really great and really great resources um, going forward. And then if you do have a student subunit near you and your student, that's like probably the best way to get involved because mm-hmm. those groups are often doing really fun stuff and they have opportunities to attend conferences. Every meeting I've basically attended through AFS has been subsidized in some way by my subunit, by the chapter, by a travel award, one of the many that's available at, through AFS. So there's a lot of resources to like attend meetings and get even research funding through, through your own sub, local subunit and then your chapter as well. Yeah, definitely. So that's a reason to become at least a member. You should become a member yeah, because you'll at least get access to all of these monetary, these, all these mm-hmm. sources of funding. Yeah, for sure. 
how do you get people to attend your student subunit meetings? Because we try so hard for some of ours. And I think part of ours is we don't do meetings as frequently. So it's harder for people to keep track of, yeah. but do you have any tips and tricks for student subunits to get people to attend meetings? I would love to hear them. Yeah. We bribe people. Okay. <laughs> so we like, we did a raffle at one of our first opening socials and that was super popular. We had a ton of people come out for that one. And then like having physical activities. So like we did fish printing at one and we have beer or food. So like having things for people to do and then having like, yeah, food or beer or raffle prizes is helpful. Mm-hmm. The other thing we, we send out a, I think it's been monthly now. We send out a monthly newsletter to update people and we also have social media accounts. Mm-hmm. So I feel like just maybe get, sometimes it's getting the word out. Yeah. Um, people are like, oh, I didn't even know what's happening. So and then we flyer around the building where we get okay. most of our members from. So I feel like that has been helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, we, we've struggled too to get people to come, especially to Zoom stuff now. Yeah. Like people just don't want to come out to Zoom things. So uh-huh. yeah. Cool. So you're also heading up the student planning committee for the annual AFS meeting coming up in Spokane, which will be on August 21st through the 25th, which is the week after this episode comes out. So looking forward to seeing anybody that's going to be there in person. Uh, What are some of the events that both virtual and in-person attendees can look forward to? Yeah, the meeting is shaping up to be really fun. I think last year was a little hard with navigating the hybrid situation and, and everything. This year the organization has been really on point. And for students in particular, we have a lot of activities. So we have our quiz bowl, which we have signups available on our website. So you can register as a team or an individual. We also have a lot of social events. There's, I think every night of the conference features some kind of social. So there's a student professional mixer. There's the grant networking social. There's various interest group socials and chapter meetings and things like that. And there's also a ton of different continuing education opportunities. I was just on the website today looking at them and there's so many that I'm like, oh, I wish I had signed up for this. Um, So that's been fun. And then in terms of DEI initiatives, I feel like this is an area where AFS has been really working to improve and we've got a bunch of really good enthusiastic people on this. So some of the DEI initiatives that I'm most excited for are there's an alphabet soup social, that's what Mm -hmm. we're calling it, for attendees who identify in the LGBTQIA BIPOC communities. There's also a number of plenary speakers that are focused on indigenous knowledge, which is really neat, um, and a bunch of sessions as well. And then there's some really useful workshops on different topics related to DEI stuff. So if you're interested in any of those, I know this is going to come out the week before the conference, but the conference website has a full list of activities and the program, and there's, there's a tab for DEI initiative. So if you're interested in any of that, they're there as well. But yeah, there's going to be a ton of stuff happening Mm -hmm. at this meeting. So I think it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And then both virtual and in-person attendees can participate in the student challenge, right? Yes. The student challenge is, it's just going to be like basically a checklist of things for students to complete. And once you finish all of those, then you'll be entered to win some kind of prize. And there's going to be a virtual option for that and an in-person option. So that's one thing that student virtual students can help can participate in. We're also hoping to run virtual a virtual student professional mixer, and we'll be streaming the quiz bowl. So the areas like that um, will also be accessible to virtual attendees. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk about the structure of the student professional mixer? So the student professional mixer is 
there, the first half of it is going to be very structured networking. And then the second half is going to be a little more relaxed. And I'm doing that because I've been to far too many networking events where it's this really painful yeah. process where you just get tossed in a room and are told to make friends with people. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for me as an introvert. <laughs> so the first half, when professionals or students arrive, they're going to pick up a card of their choice at the entrance table. And each of these cards is going to have a different topic on it that refers to a different table in the room. So these could be things like marine genetics or indigenous knowledge or student education. So things like that. And that's going to be a start of a round robin style networking event. So people will spend a few minutes at that first table, we get to know each other. And then the students are going to rotate around the room, professionals will stay there where they are. And um, we'll have maybe about a, a 45 minutes to an hour of that. Mm-hmm. And then the second half is going to be lawn games. So we're going to have things like giant Jenga and cornhole and whatever other things I can round up. And that'll be more of an open, relaxed time. So people can chat with professionals or other students or, or whoever, um, but it's not as structured as the first as the first part. So that's the way that we're running that. Oh, and there will be food. So you should come out. Yes. <laughs> Bribe everyone with food. Yes, definitely. <laughs> always. Well, this brings us to, we call, we say that the first part of the interview is the tough part. I don't think that's actually true. So I would consider this brings us to the tough part of the interview. As we get down to the final five questions, we ask each guest that comes on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? I feel like this one has changed a lot for me over the course of my career, but probably right now it's the American eel, Anguilla restrata. I even have a tattoo of their life cycle. So that probably should be my favorite. Yeah, (laughs) That's great. But other favorite fish, I will just say that as a, as a person who works on early life history, um, I look a lot at larvae and their lar- larvae look really different from the adults. So my two favorite larvae are the mola mola, which are entirely spherical and they have a giant eye and like a little bitty tiny tail, but they're mostly just a round ball. And then the istiophoridae, which include swordfishes and marlins. And they're just really cute. They've got these like little pot bellies and it's like little bitty tiny pointed nose and they're really adorable. So those are also two of my favorite fishes. That's awesome. I think this is the first time someone's answered for a favorite larval stage. And I feel like that should be part of it. Now. <laughs> it definitely should be part of it. They look so different. It's like a whole different world out there. Right. Okay. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? There was a summer when I was working on my coloration project where I spent almost the whole summer on Catalina Island in the California Channel Islands. Um, and it was like totally epic to live on the island. And I went scuba diving every day for my job. And I got to go on runs and hikes around the island and see bison. And it, it was just an awesome summer. Catalina is, it's like 20 miles from the, from LA, but it feels like a, an entirely different world. And mm. um, we were on this part of the island where that's like very, it's got a really small population. So yeah, it was just really special, really special summer. Yeah, that sounds amazing. What is your dream job and or location? Yeah, I'm shout out to anyone looking to hire um, a future (laughs) postdoc. I would love to work on eels or marine eel larvae, and I'd love to be based in Maine. And Mm. Maine is just, that's where we fish the most American eels in the country. Maryland is the other, the other big spot. So there's still eels up there. And also Maine with climate change, the temperature of Maine will probably be more like Boston in like 25 years. So thinking about climate. So yeah, anyone in Maine looking for a postdoc, um, I'm your girl. (laughs) 
That's great. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I think I'd love to keep working on eel larvae. They're really hard to sample. So you need big boats and big nets. They're just really good swimmers. So they can swim out of nets. And I feel like funding is such an issue with doing any sort of cruise or big sampling project. So ideally, like I'd love to just trawl around the, the Channel Islands and look for marine eel larvae. And I'd love to do something similar in the Atlantic for our American eel, try to pinpoint like what they're doing out there as larvae, because it's, it's a real mystery still. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Our last question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Oh yeah. Um, I'll take a little bit of a turn here. I, I also think a lot about sustainability and climate change and our own role. I'm like this person who avoids plastic at like all costs and everything. And one principle that I recently learned from Ayanna Johnson, who is the author of a really amazing book called All We Can Save. So I really recommend that book to everyone, that she has this idea of a climate Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. And that is thinking about the intersection between what you love and or what gets you up in the morning, what your strengths and skills are, and then what climate actions need to happen. For me, that translates to fisheries conservation. So I what gets me up in the morning is like working on larval fish and thinking about larval fish. And, um, I'm good at things like modeling or coming up with research questions. And then what needs to happen is like, we need sustainable fisheries. We need food for the future. We need healthy ecosystems. So that's where I fit into. And I also fit into promoting non-car-based transportation. So I also love to bike Mm -hmm. and I know a lot about bike infrastructure and public transit. And then we need to get more people out of their cars and more people walking and biking in safe ways. So that's where I fit in my climate diagram. And I want you all to think about what is your intersection to what gets you up in the morning? What are you good at? What needs to happen? That is great. I'm happy you brought that up. I, I enjoy that. I have that book and I also um, listen to her podcast that she started. Oh, I think yeah. she's off as a co-host right now, but it's great. Well, I feel like they're <laughs> going to probably talk about, um, <laughs> talk about the Venn diagram because it's like yeah. a new thing these days but yeah yeah for sure well thank you so much for coming on the podcast today Kat it was great hearing about you and all of your work and all the work that or all the events we have coming up at the AFS meeting this what will be this coming week <laughs> if people want to find out more information about your work or get a hold of you how could they do that yeah so you're welcome to email me at k-d-a-l-e at ucsc.edu or you can check out my website which is k-e-m-d-a-l-e.com kemdal.com and then I'm also on Instagram and my handle is catfish out of water nice check me out there great I will include all those as show notes if you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast you can find me at kb hindley on twitter and the podcast is on twitter facebook and instagram at fisheries pod or send us an email at feedback at the fisheries podcast.com i hope you all enjoyed this episode you can download past present and future episodes on your favorite listing app or stream it from spotify or the fisheries podcast.com and don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through patreon or by rocking some awesome fisheries podcast shirts hoodies and stickers available on teespring I'm Katie Heinle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, find where you fit in your climate Venn diagram. What gets you up in the morning? What are you good at? And what needs to happen?